So, for those of you that have been coming for a while, you'll know that we have been in the Gospel of John for quite some time. 83 weeks, a little bit over two years, we have spent going in and through every verse that has been in that book. Every word that John has written, we have at least covered. Um, we are about four weeks away from being done. So we have made it. Uh, we're going to be wrapping up chapter 20 today. We have made it to the last chapter of the gospel, and we are about four weeks from wrapping all these pieces up. And we've made it to where John really spends the majority of his time, right? Two-thirds of his book was anchored in the last week in the life of Christ leading up to his death and ultimately culminating in the resurrection. Well, we have made it there. We have made it to the resurrection. We have made it to the first few resurrection appearances. And I want you for a moment this morning to just sort of wipe your mind a little bit because we have 2,000 years of history on our side. We have a complete redemptive picture in scripture of what's taken place through the Old Testament, leading up to the New Testament, culminating in the resurrection. We have the picture of the early church and the calling and the, and the, the showing up of the Holy Spirit. We have all these amazing things that lead to this complete picture of redemptive history. We've even got the testimony of millions upon millions of believers from around the world across time. You have your own experience with Christ as a follower of his, right? But I want you for just a moment to take those things and I want you to put them to, to the side and I want you to imagine that you are one of the gathered disciples in this first week, maybe even on this first day. You know, the reports are coming in. Started with Mary. She went down to the tomb and they say that Jesus' body wasn't there. And so John and Peter race down when Mary comes back up to tell them and they come back and they corroborate the story, right? Jesus' body isn't there. I want you to imagine what runs through their hearts and their minds that, that sort of first day, that Easter Sunday, as we call it now. All the doubts and all the curiosities and all the wonderment, it's not filled with the same excitement that you and I have on Easter when we celebrate the empty tomb because we know what that empty tomb meant. At this point in time, 2,000 years ago, there was still so much doubt and so much confusion over what was happening. They believed that someone had stolen the body of Jesus. They've yet to put all these pieces together. They had walked through this treacherous past week, right? They had stood there as this angry mob of religious leaders came and seized Jesus with, with clubs and torches. They had all fled and run, every single disciple. They had watched him be put on a sham of a trial, first in the courtyard of the high priest and then before Pilate. They had watched Jesus be beaten and humiliated and crucified, and they had watched him die. They had been there when the earth shook and the clouds went dark, right? They had watched the soldiers take a spear and shove it in Jesus' side. They had watched them remove their body. They had been there as, as his followers gathered his body and wrapped it in 75 pounds of linen and spices. They had watched Joseph of Arimathea volunteer his own unused tomb, a big hole carved in a rock. They had taken Jesus' body, they had laid it in there, and they had watched the Roman soldiers post guard as the stone was rolled in front of it. And then two weeks ago, we look at this text, and confusion ensues. Mary shows up at the tomb, and she is deeply saddened because she believes someone has stolen the body of Jesus. 
She accuses the gardener of essentially taking it and says, if you'll just tell me where you took it, I won't even be mad. I just want to know where it is and I'll go and get it. But it wasn't really the gardener, was it? At the moment, the gardener says the word Mary and Mary's eyes are open and she realizes she's speaking to Jesus and she's overjoyed because now, for the first time, we see the resurrected Christ and he appears to Mary at the tomb. Mary runs all the way back to where now all the disciples are gathered. Peter and John are there. They had been to the empty tomb, but they had not yet seen the resurrected Christ. And Mary comes in the room and she said, you're not going to believe it, but I have seen the Lord. And she told them everything that had happened. But they all still weren't sure. They were afraid. They were afraid that the Jews had taken the body. They didn't know if they should believe Mary or not. And they believed that the Jewish people that had killed Jesus and were, were planning to either execute them next or they were at least capable of it and so they locked themselves in a room locked themselves in it door locked for fear this is where we were last week last week the disciples were huddled together none of them had seen the resurrection resurrected christ but mary at this point the doors were locked because they were afraid of the jews and the text tells us that jesus came and he stood among them meaning the doors had no ability to keep him out and he stands among them and he looked at all the brothers and he says peace be with you as the father has sent me i am sending you and he gives them this call and this charge and it says that they are overjoyed and all the disciples were in the room and they were overjoyed well all except for two we know that Judas had already taken his life. And what we're going to learn today is that there was one of the disciples that was missing, a guy by the name of Thomas. And Thomas becomes very famous for, I think, all the wrong reasons. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up at the end of John chapter 20. We're going to examine what happens next. And the next of these resurrection appearances is recorded by John. All the disciples except for Thomas have now seen the resurrected Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word, that it is true, that it is living, that it is active. God, we thank you for how so much of scripture reflects the things that are happening in our lives, in our heart. This is not a, 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 a book or a series of letters that is removed from us. But Lord, it captures so many of my feelings and fears and excitements and joys and failures all in one, and you speak directly to them. And this morning, God, I believe that you speak directly to our own doubts and our fears. I believe that you speak right in the middle of some of our biggest questions. And so, Lord, I pray that as you do that this morning, you will teach our hearts. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. In a very familiar story, a story that you have heard probably dozens and dozens of times, ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. Take a moment, pray for someone beside you, in front of you, or behind you. Maybe you know them well, maybe you don't. We want to be a church that's in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is really not about you. So pray for somebody else. Pray that God would move in them, that he would teach them, that he would instruct their hearts. Even if you don't know their name, just pray that God would move in them.
Lord, we come before you believing and trusting that you are who you say you are, believing that you are the one true God, that you are the resurrected Christ, that we have new life in you. Lord, I pray that you would step in the middle of our lives and you would show yourself to us this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' holy and perfect name. Amen. So John chapter 20, we're going to go, um, four, uh, we'll go 24 to the end of the chapter this morning. We're going to meet and encounter our friend Thomas. Verse 24, now Thomas called Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Through the door, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands, reach out, and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus said to him, Because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his, his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So we know this story well, right? We know the idea and the concept and the story behind doubting Thomas. I mean, that's been part of our Christian lexicon for a long time right? Don't be a doubting Thomas. Thomas gets this rap. And it comes from this text, of course. The disciples were gathered together and Jesus appears to them and he lets them touch his hands and his sides and they are overjoyed. They're excited about it. But Thomas, we learn in verse 20, was not there. All the other disciples seem to be there, but Thomas is not. We have no idea where Thomas was. Maybe he was out, maybe he had something happening downtown, maybe he was on a Union 5, nobody knows, but he wasn't there. He was not locked in the room with those folks on that evening. He was gone. But the disciples knew each other so well, they had spent the past three years going through intense emotional things with Jesus. They had walked the Judean countryside, they had known each other's heartbeats, they had all walked away from life to follow Jesus together. They had been part of the emotional experience of the past three days right? They were all there. And so when Jesus appears behind the locked doors of the disciples and they're overjoyed, last week we saw they were overjoyed when Jesus spoke to them and they saw him. They remembered that somebody was noticeably absent. And I like to think that they went out and found Thomas somewhere during that evening or maybe that next morning. They went and they found Thomas and they're going, you're not going to believe this, man. Where were you? Like he showed up. He literally went right through these doors and we were all gathered there and you wouldn't believe it. And they shared this incredible news with Thomas, or at least that's how I like to think it would have unfolded. But somehow the disciples told Thomas that they had seen Jesus, that he had actually held out his hands and he had let them touch the nail marks, that they had been able to put their fingers in the pierced side of Jesus. And as they're telling Thomas this, we get Thomas's really famous line, don't we? Where Thomas says to them, unless I see the nail marks myself 
in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and my hand into his side, I will not believe it. So Thomas essentially says to them, that's great. I'm glad you got to have that experience. But unless I get to have the same experience you did, unless I see for myself or I put my fingers there, I'm I'm not going to believe it. I just can't. Why? Because it didn't make sense to any rational mindset. He had watched Jesus die. He had been there when the clouds went dark and the earth shook. He had been there when the soldiers stabbed his side. He had seen the body wrapped in all of those linens. He knew Jesus was dead. Yet here the disciples saying that they had seen Jesus, but Thomas says, unless I see him for myself, I don't think I can believe you. And I think that's the context in which this doubting Thomas sort of gets his name or his rap or his reputation as this sort of doubter. He's not necessarily at this moment doubting Jesus. He's just doubting the words of the disciples like, unless I could have the same experience you did, I, I can't believe. I want to see it for myself, right? I venture to think that I'd probably be somewhat the same. I mean, this has never happened before, right? You had watched all these things unfold, but, but nonetheless, he says, unless I see for myself, I can't believe. Well, verse 26 says a week goes by. So it's now the next Sunday. All the disciples were gathered again, and Thomas was there with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came among them and stood there. So here's the same thing, same scenario, a week removed. Jesus had appeared to them. He had vanished. And the disciples had gathered together in a locked room out of fear. Even though Jesus had just told them, peace be with you, peace be with you, I am sending you the same as my Father has sent me. They're gathered together again in the locked room, except this time Thomas is there. The doors were locked and Jesus comes and he stands among them and he says essentially the same thing, peace be with you. We talked a lot about that last week. I won't get into it this week. And then he goes over to Thomas. Out of all the disciples, Jesus goes over to the one that wasn't there. Jesus knew these guys intimately. And he says, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out and put your hand into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then just Jesus told them, because you have seen me, you have believed, and you believe, the, and, and you believe, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then John gives us this incredible statement, which I wish I'd really have time to get into today about Jesus did all kinds of miraculous things, even more than these. And they're all written so that we may believe that Jesus was the son of God. Remember way back when I told you that the entire point of the gospel of John was that John wants us to know that Jesus was God. Basically right here, John says, this was just the tip of the iceberg. But all of these things, we wrote them down so that you would know that Jesus was God. But I want to spend our time really on Thomas this morning because I believe Thomas gets a really bad rap. I mean, he's sort of known for this one giant moment of doubt, right? It's in our, as I mentioned, it's in our lexicon. Don't be a doubting Thomas, as if that's something super negative. But I actually like Thomas, and I'm going to get into why. The first thing I want us to understand in this picture is that I believe that Thomas's doubts 
And I think really fears are real. Now, it may seem like a little bit of an overstatement or maybe an understatement, but the truth is, is that he's got very real doubts. And I actually believe those are very real fears. Like the disciples, they were afraid. They were gathered behind locked doors. They were afraid for their lives. They believed the Jews that had killed Jesus were going to be coming for them next. They were afraid. Thomas also doubted. He actually doubted if this really happened. He had heard the disciples talk about it. He had heard them say they had seen the resurrected Christ, but he had not seen it for himself, and he didn't know if it was really true. So whether or not Thomas's doubts are validated or not, or his fears are okay or not, doesn't really matter. I want you to see that I believe they're real. He's not just making some kind of, of, of statement or some kind of stand saying, I just want to make sure I see it for myself. I believe that Thomas is very much in doubt right now on whether or not Jesus is really resurrected. And I believe he's still very much afraid. In fact, the disciples are so afraid that they're back behind locked doors. And I believe it's important to admit that Thomas's doubts are real because it'll validate the fact that you and I are allowed to have doubts that are real as well. Now, I only mention that because I think most of us spend the majority of our Christian lives trying to downplay the doubts and fears that we have. We live, and this is a bit of an overstatement, so hear it that way, but we live the majority of our Christian lives trying to be validated by other Christians. We want to them to support our lives and validate our faith and our belief. We want to compare ourselves to them and we want them to see that we are trustworthy or we are faithful or that we believe. We want our lives and our marriages and our kids and our decisions to be validated by other believers. And the problem with that is that in order to do that, we have to suppress several things. We oftentimes have to suppress our very real doubts and our very real fears. Because we've been trained most of our life to say that if we have doubts as Christians, that somehow that is a lack of faith. And so most of us spend the majority of our life trying to suppress our doubts, trying to bury them and hide them, because we don't want to admit out loud that we're not 100% sure that any of this is real. That we don't actually want to say out loud that I doubt that God can do what he says he can do. Or that maybe our doubts are wrapped up and I believe God can do it for them. I just don't know that God can do it for me. I believe that God is a God of forgiveness. But I don't believe he can forgive me because I know what I've done, what I've thought, what I've said, and what I believe. The dangerous side of suppressing those doubts is that it leads to complete and total inauthenticity. It's what the majority of our churches are filled with, right? Our inability to act truthfully or to actually engage in a truthful dialogue that says, I'm really struggling believing that this is true. Life has not been the rosy picture that it seems to be for everybody else. My life is hard. My kids are bad. We bounce checks. Yes, we still write checks. Life is hard, and God at times seems to be nowhere. But we don't say that to each other because we've been taught that if we vocalize those doubts that somehow that's a lack of faith and therefore God or other people will look down upon us. 
What I think Thomas does for me initially is that he validates the truth that his doubts and fears are real and so are mine. If we suppress our doubts in the church, if we suppress our fears in the church, if we suppress those things and continue to just pretend they don't exist, we lead ourselves into an inauthenticity. And that inauthenticity is dangerous. Here's what I mean. So oftentimes people will ask you, how are you doing? Or they'll say, hey, Treb, how's it going? My answer is very rarely, hey, it's, you know, it's okay. It's not great. It's not terrible. It's not good. Oh, uh, why? Like, uh uh-oh, why? Well, I don't know, man. It's it's okay. Things are all right. I'm just really struggling. How so? Well, Truth is, man, I just feel like a real failure as a husband, as a dad. I really just wonder if God's going to show up and provide like I really want him to. And sometimes I wonder if he's real. Um, okay. Well, man, trust Jesus. Really? That's why. Okay, awesome. Thanks. Thanks for the advice. It's what I'm struggling with anyway. Appreciate it. Because there's no real answer for that, because it's not a real question. The real question, Treb, how are you doing, is really just to tell me you're doing fine so that we know how to greet each other. Now, in some places in our small groups, life happens on a little bit more authentic level, but very rarely is it truly authentic, right? I mean, it's always hedged. I'm not saying we walk around and we live these open book transparent where you spill your deepest secrets, but I, I, I think we need to be at a place where it's okay within the context of the church to say, I've got some doubts. I've got some doubts. Here's what's liberating about this for me. It's not just that we have doubts, because I don't think that having doubts and fears necessarily is a good thing, but I just want to let you know that it's real, okay? I don't want you to be afraid of it. But there's something amazing that happens in this text that I think happens when we acknowledge that our doubts and fears are real, right? It comes in understanding that Jesus actually knows that already. This is what he does to Thomas, right? So Thomas is having these doubts. He says this to the disciples. They're gathered there the next evening, a week later, and Jesus shows up and he says the exact same words he has said before, peace be with you. And then in verse 27, he says to Thomas, he doesn't address any of the other folks that are in the room, none of the other disciples. He addresses Thomas. And listen to what he says to him. Put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. How did Jesus know that Thomas was doubting? How did Jesus know to walk into that room, walk straight over to Thomas, tell him to touch his hands, put his finger in his side, and then look at him and say, stop doubting and believe? How did he know? Did Peter call him? Did Peter call Jesus and say, hey, uh, Jesus, listen, here's the deal. We talked to Thomas. We told him he flipped out. The truth is, he doesn't get it, man. Here's what we need you to do. If you will, next week, if you're not busy doing something with Pilate, like if you'll come back and like show up and do the same exact thing you did with us, that would be so awesome because we just really want him to know. And so Jesus says, hey, that's a great idea, Pete. I'm going to do that, man. And so Jesus comes back the next day and he kind of winks at Peter as he walks in and Peter's like, sweet. And he's like, hey, Thomas, had no idea you doubted, man. Thanks for the secret phone call, Peter. How did Jesus know? Because Jesus knows our hearts, right? 
Your doubts and fears aren't going to be a surprise to God. He's not like, holy cow, Treb's really wondering if I'm going to show up. Treb's really struggling to make the connection today that I'm still in total control and that I love him. Jesus knows your doubts and your fears, and he knew Thomas's doubts and fears. Now, this should come as no surprise, but what it should do is it should be freeing. Because here's the deal. I can hide those doubts and fears from other believers my whole life, but I can't hide them from the Lord. He knows them. So if Jesus knows them and he knows I have them before I even utter them to a soul, if I can acknowledge that truth, there is something so freeing there. Because look at what Jesus does when he knows Thomas's fears. He walks right over to Thomas and he addresses them. He shows up right in the middle of them and he walks over to Thomas and he addresses his fears and his doubts by saying, go ahead. I want you to see, touch my hands, touch my side. Stop doubting. He doesn't look at Thomas and come in the room or he doesn't hold out and say, no, I'm not coming back until Thomas puts it all together. Thomas has got to figure this thing out and he's got to believe your words or I'm not coming again. He doesn't hold out for Thomas to figure it all out and kind of go, yeah, I mean, I can put their words. They said they saw him. I really just need to trust. If I trust, then Jesus says, yeah, you finally trusted. Here I am. No, Jesus shows up in the middle of the locked doors and all their fears and he goes straight over to Thomas and he says, Thomas, I'm gonna meet you in the middle of these doubts and fears and I'm gonna show you that I am who I say I am. Now stop doubting. He doesn't berate him. He doesn't ridicule him. Jesus doesn't make fun of him for doubting. His comment of stop doubting and belief is not a rebuke, I believe. I believe it's a command. Thomas, I have shown myself to you. I know your doubts and fears. I want you to see me in the middle of all this. Now that you've seen, stop doubting and truly believe. The promise of Christ is that he will show up in the middle of our doubts and fears. And then when we know that he knows them, we can be liberated in that because I don't have to hide from God anymore. It is the most tiring exercise in the Christian life to hide from God because it's impossible. But yet we do it. We tuck those things away in the corners of our mind, the corners of our life. We pretend that God can't see them and we pull the curtain closed and we play a game and a charade over here. We dance around and we say, God, look at all the things that I'm doing for you. And God all the time is going, what about all this stuff over here behind the curtain? And we're going, no, no, over here, look over here. But God knows about all those secret fears and doubts and the things we don't want to mention to another soul. And like Thomas, he walks in the room and he walks straight over to him. He doesn't even greet Thomas in any other way. He just walks right over to him and he says, touch me. He shows up right in the middle of those. That's the promise of scripture is that God does not tell us that he will show up when we fix all of our doubts. He does not promise that he is going to show up in your life once you're able to reconcile the fears and the doubts that you have and make this bridge of trust. No, your doubts and fears are real. And they may not be okay, but they're real. And God wants to show up in the middle of them because he knows them. And he knows you have them. And when he shows up in the middle of them, his promise, right, is that he will, he will address them and he will reveal himself. 
God's not waiting just to berate you for doubting. God wants to show up in the middle of your fears and, and show you who he is. So how does Thomas respond to all that? Well, when Jesus says, stop doubting and believe, what does Thomas say? Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. Now, I know we've talked in here a lot about worship, what worship is and what worship isn't, right? We know that worship is not liturgy. It's not uh, songs. It's not what we do here for 50 minutes on a Sunday morning. That's an aspect of worship. But true worship, right, is the idea, the recognition of who I am in comparison to who God is. Worship always is a response to that. When I recognize the glorious nature of the incredible kind of character of God and my sinful broken self, what we see in scripture always results in worship. And that's essentially what we see here, right? Jesus says in the middle of Thomas's doubts, he basically says, I'm God. And Thomas responds in worship by saying, my God and my Lord. Notice the key words there, my. This is no longer somebody else's story. It's no longer the story of the other disciples. It's no longer their encounter. This was Thomas's encounter. My Lord and my God. If we play this out in our lives, right? If we just look at our own hearts, our doubts and fears are real like Thomas's. They may not be earth shattering, but they're real, right? I may not struggle with whether or not I believe God exists, but I struggle with whether or not sometimes I believe he shows up or if he can take care of me or if he's going to forgive me or whatever those things are. Can he provide for my family or protect my children or is he big enough to save my marriage or whatever those pieces are? Those doubts and fears are real. And part of our life as followers of Christ is to live in an authentic way where we know that God already knows and that we will need to be authentic with each other. But if God already knows, then there's no reason to hide those things from him. And he invites us to call them out. And the promise of God is that he will show up in the middle of them. Doesn't mean he's going to have every answer and he's going to comfort in the exact way that you want, but it means that God will show up in the the middle of them, that he won't berate you for doubting, but he'll look at you and he'll say, look, I'm here. See, Jesus didn't alleviate all their fears. They're still locked in a room, petrified for their lives. But he basically said, look, Thomas, I am here. I'm here. And Thomas' response was worship. My Lord and my God. Now, Thomas gets a pretty bad rap, and I want to end with this this morning because I just think it's not fair if we don't. Thomas is known, right? He is known for this doubting, but that's not really who he was completely. We get another little picture of Thomas in John chapter 11. A lot of you guys may remember about a year ago when we were in John 11, um, we ran into Thomas again. It's the really only other place we see him in Scripture. Now, John chapter 11 is a really important chapter because this is the chapter where Lazarus dies. You remember that? Mary and Martha's brother, whom Jesus loved and cared for like crazy. Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick. And Jesus tells the disciples, hey, we're, uh, this is not going to end in death, but we're going to stay here for a few more days. So the servants go back, and two days go by, and Jesus tells the disciples, hey, it's time for us to go back to Judea, the area of Bethany where Lazarus was. And uh, the disciples start talking. They're like, Jesus, we can't go back there. Because just about a week ago, they tried to kill you. And that had happened. Just a little bit ago, they had tried to kill Jesus in the same area. And the disciples knew that to go back, it was going to be extremely dangerous, and it could cost them their lives. And so Jesus tells them this parable that none of them understand. 
And they come back and basically say, no, no, we're going to die if you go back. You can't go back. And Jesus goes, look, we're going to go back and see Lazarus. And they're like, well, Lazarus is basically like, it's, it's too late. And Jesus says, no, he's only asleep. I'm going to, he's only asleep. And they say, well, if he's asleep, he'll wake up. He says, you don't get it. He's actually dead. He talks to him very plainly. I'm going to raise him. And they're like, oh. But listen to what our boy, right, Thomas says to Jesus in that point in time. In John chapter 11, this is what Thomas says. <clears throat> so right there as all the guys are freaking out saying we can't go back because they're going to kill him, right? Thomas comes back and he basically looks right at Jesus and he says in verse 16, then Thomas called Didymus said to the rest of the disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. So they believe that Jesus going back to the area of Bethany and Judea was a death sentence. They believe, he believed deeply that it was going to cost them their lives. And the disciples are going, we're not going back there. It's not smart. And Thomas looks at all of them and he says, listen, Let's go with him, and we'll go with him and die. And I don't believe Thomas is being sarcastic. We don't really see sarcasm in Scripture. I believe Thomas is being true because he believed a couple of things. One, he trusted Jesus. He trusted Jesus enough to follow him into the dangerous. He believed that Jesus hadn't led them astray, and he wasn't going to start leading them astray now. And if Jesus said, we're going back, then I trust you enough to go with you. But the second thing he did was he also believed that Jesus was worth dying for. See, Thomas believed that if they went back, they would die. He said, let us go back so that we may die with him. In other words, we're not going to send him to die alone. If the Jews are going to seize him and stone him, then we're going to die with him. And he trusted Jesus, and he believed that Jesus was worth dying for. See, Thomas isn't a superhero of the faith, right? He's really just kind of a normal dude who's got a lot of fears, a lot of shortcomings, a lot of doubts, and a deep passion for following Jesus and a willingness to maybe even die for him. I have zero desire to be a superhero when it comes to the faith. I have zero desire to be flawless or failless. But I have a lot of desire to be a lot like Thomas, to recognize that there are real doubts and fears in my life, Real things that I question about God. Real things that I want to see for myself. Real things that he's shown me time and time again that I still wonder about. Shortcomings in my own heart. But I want to be at a place where I believe and trust Jesus. And believe that he's worth dying for. And so as I think about Thomas and his bad rap and his doubting... I don't see it as something terrible. Sure, we should fight the doubts in our lives and we don't want to have them and we need to ask God to remove them and free us from them, but we don't need to pretend they're not there. But at the same time, we need to live such courageous lives that we trust Jesus and believe that he's worth dying for or maybe for most of us, myself included, that he's worth living for. See, Thomas's doubts don't define him. What defines Thomas is his desire to know Jesus, to see for himself, and to trust that he is the God that he said he was. Whatever your doubts and fears are this morning, 
Lay those against your desire to trust Jesus and to live for him. Be honest with your heart and yourself. Believe that God will show up in the middle of those. Believe that he knows and that he will meet you right where you are. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together this morning to open your word. We thank you for men like Thomas who are not perfect pictures that have ups and downs and fears and failures. We thank you that they are men of courage and honesty and authenticity and fear. We thank you that Thomas's doubts, though real, don't define him. We thank you that his doubts don't seem to be in you as much as they just seem to be the fact that he just needs to see. Lord, the truth is, I feel like that's a lot of my own doubt sometimes. I don't doubt necessarily that you're real, but sometimes I just need to see you and experience you and feel you. Sometimes, Lord, I feel like you're miles away. God, sometimes I feel like that if I could just understand why some things happen or things are the way they are, if I could just know why, then it would all be okay. But Lord, the truth is that's just my doubt and fear creeping up. You know that in my heart. You know who I am. And yet instead of berating me or ridiculing me or mocking me, you show up in the middle of those and you say, Trevor, I am here. I am enough for you. And Lord, I believe you speak those things in each of our lives this morning, that no matter what our doubts or our fears or our struggles are, you know them. You're not surprised by them. We don't have to hide them from you. It's exhausting. But you show up in the middle of them and you say, I'm right here. Touch my hands. Put your fingers where you need to put them. Stop doubting and believe. And so, Lord, my prayer for us this morning is just that, that we would stop doubting and believe. We have the God of the universe standing in the middle of our doubts and fears, calling us to something incredible. That we would trust you enough to believe you're worth living for. That we would stop doubting and believe. As we close our time in worship this morning, Lord, I pray that you would move in our heart, you would draw us closer to you, that you would free us from the lies that we've bought into, from the fears that have seized our hearts, and from the doubts that are rendering us motionless, and set us free to live and follow you. Let's stand together and close our time in worship. Mm-hmm.